0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. I'm Brian Sobolewski, and I am your host, having walked you through the five-year period that my father, brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England. This is Season 2, The Aftermath, and this is Episode 6, Skepticism, And that is an amalgamation of skeptical and optimism, and that is the topic of today's Episode as we as I walk you through the couple of times in my life that I have been in love and we're going to bring you right up to the point that um, I am in the story that I'm currently telling you about how all of this falls apart after the robberies uh, just after Nancy's arrest which is where we're at in the timeline a lot of weird things happen to me I start behaving very very weird. And it did weird things to my brain. And I want to go over those things in detail with you in the second part of this episode. But the first episode, we're going to explore all the girlfriends that Brian's had. And and all of the times that Brian has had brushes with with love. And uh, I'm not going to talk about myself in the third person anymore, so don't worry about it. Now, the cover photo that you see for this episode is me. And you can see the smirk on my face. And... Um, at some point I'll post a collage of all of the pictures that I have of me when I was under 10 years old and I'm not smiling in a single one of them. I think I'm smiling one of them where I got the Godzilla. Um, it was like a three foot tall Godzilla and you press this trigger in the back of his head and he breathes fire. And I think he had wheels on his feet so you could roll them. And I think his fists, one or both of his fists shot off, which wasn't, you know, wasn't what lizards normally do but there you go and i think i was faking a smile there but you can see in this cover photo i am smirking because i remember that photographer and that was a school photo i'm in my brother's shirt a shirt my brother certainly couldn't fit in anymore but i i couldn't fit in it now and I am in clo- I was always in clothes that were way too big for me. I just, I looked way smaller than I really needed to. And I think that's why, you know, potentially I was a target for such bullies. I was always in shoes that were a couple two sizes for me, clomping around. Um, and that shirt you see, that collar, could wrap around my head a couple times. And that's Kevin's, uh, you know, 30-inch neck. But that cover photo pretty much says it all in terms of today's topic. Um, Scepticism is the no, Scepticism <laughs> is my alternative to anybody calling me negative, which is a sore spot for me. I don't like being called negative, and uh, it, it depends on who's saying it. But it's it's a fine line between sarcasm and negative. I think, and I'm very sarcastic, and I, I am negative. So if I wasn't it. It wouldn't bother me when people called me it. So I I understand that I do have a dark side and I do get negative, but I prefer to think of it as being skeptimistic. Meaning, I believe shit's probably going to go wrong, but I hope it doesn't. There you go. That is my definition of the philosophy that I think governs most of my decisions and how I feel about stuff. It's probably not going to go well. But I really hope it does, okay? That, that's as, And I think negativity, you know, to me in my brain, uh, is symbolic of a void. You know, nothing nothing good is in there ever. And, you know, that's, that's just not me. I don't, like, I don't like anything that places me um, on the extremist side of the scale. I feel like as a middle child, I've always been very bendable. And that, that's where I think my philosophy of skepticism comes in. Are you skeptimistic about things? I think most people are. This me, mean, COVID pretty much <laughs> turned this world into a bunch of skeptics. I'm coining that phrase right here. That and that photo says it all. That is the uh, cover, the cover model for scepticism. Is my f- stupid face at I don't know seven or eight years old when I'm maybe even younger. I'm little there, man. But I've always been little. Uh, the first, my first. Entanglement. And I have to say that elementary school is going to be a bust for me because it was seven years that I spent at Welch School and uh, you basically started uh, on one side of the school on the bottom floor, went to the other side of the bottom floor of that, <laughs> of that school and then they transferred you upstairs and then you spent a year in each one of those rooms up there and it was, uh, you know, it was school. What can I tell you? But there wasn't a whole lot of dating throughout it. But, you know, around 3rd, 4th, 5th grade, you know, guys start having girlfriends. And you, oh, this girl likes you and that girl likes you. And, you know, nobody liked me. I can tell you that. And part of it was I was uh, I was a loner man. I stuck to myself. I didn't want anybody to, to bother me. That being said, I didn't, I was never a part of any dating scene. But I certainly had feelings for for girls at that point and hoped to someday have a girlfriend but you know it wasn't in the cards for me the first experience that I had was really young probably fourth grade and I used to spend recess in the back of the school where the janitor's office was right next to the dumpster for the cafeteria and that's where John Harrigan used to uh, hang out during uh, his lunch break and I would just go hang with him and uh I was back there one day and Debbie George came and found me. Now, Debbie George was, um, Sean Lackwitz, and Debbie had a, let's just say, um, she liked him. He didn't like her back. Debbie was very, very tough. And she came up to me and said, Hey, you and I are going out now because she wanted to make Sean jealous. And you know, from past episodes that Sean and I did not have a good history and she was putting me in this position Uh, She was setting me up for failure. Because Sean was just going to kill me just for for being involved in this in any way, shape, or form. So her fact that she was even talking to me was going to get me beat up. And the fact that she was saying what she was saying is going to get me beat up. So I'm like, no, we are not going out. And then she punched me as hard as she could in the stomach. And then she said, well, how about now? (laughs) And I said, no. And then (laughs) she... quick cross right to my right shoulder. So it was punch to the stomach that keeled me over. And then how about now? And I said, no, boom, right to the right shoulder that stood me back up. She's like, how about now? And I'm like, okay, right, <laughs> two, that's how many I could take. Um, so beyond that, I had very, very little interest in dating until seventh grade. And seventh grade was where uh, a new girl came into our class from another school district because she moved um, in with her grandmother and her name was Chrissy and she was just the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my life and there was part I think part of this was because she didn't know me and she didn't know my reputation yet so I saw it as an opportunity to to get in on something here I could be whoever I wanted to be and and create whatever persona I wanted to create and Chrissy was super, super nice. Uh, she, I went right after, I think I had my buddy Mike tell her that I liked her and passed her a note and she wrote back and we exchanged numbers and we started talking and we hung out a couple times. Remember, these are pre-teens, man. You know, kisses, like, oh my God, that's third base to us back then. I, you know, she kissed me once or twice and I was just geeked. I was, you know, it, <laughs> I was already a very insecure kid to it put me immediately and it is a feeling that I've carried through most of my relationships of great comfort and great anxiety at the same time. So the, the reason I'm skeptimistic and why I'm amalgamating two words like that and squeezing them together is because I've always stood on a line of when I'm in love, it's the greatest thing in the world, but there's part of me that's like, Holy Christ, this is going to end. This person doesn't have to stay. She's not family. (laughs) Um, and and it's the the idea of them leaving is horrific, and you can go even a step further. And this is something that post prison and all of this, uh, very later in life. Uh, Bob, my therapist, uh, he said that it's probably more anxiety provoking to you um, is the idea of somebody staying, which we'll explore again later. But this this set that tone. Chrissy set that tone of. Jesus, this is wonderful, but my God, there's no way I can handle it. And and again, that is the common theme throughout most of my relationships when I've been in love. Chrissy is somebody that kept popping up throughout my teenage years and was somebody that I knew from Welch school. And we were both, you know, raised by weird, you know, Chrissy had to live with her grandmother and you know she whatever issues or whatever was happening with her family dad wasn't around the mom I think uh you know whatever that being said we we bonded um over over mutual you know dysfunctional families but uh she broke up with me and it was devastating like we dated a month and uh you know teenagers uh it was devastating it was devastating to me uh, she had a best friend that lived across the street, and that girl just swooped right in and, you know, mended my broken wing, and we made out one night, and all of a sudden now I'm dating this girl, and I break up with her for the same reason. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle that that duality. It's not just being in love. It's um, being in love and then being horrified and terrified of when it's going to be taken away. So we're going to go right up into uh, Bishop Fenwick. Now, I went to middle school, which was 8th grade. So after 7th grade of weld School, moved into 8th grade, which was Higgins Junior High School. And this is where a, a, a very strange transition happens for me because you are basically thrown into a middle school, which is a bunch of zip codes being all bused together and thrown into this school together. So the people that... That you didn't like and didn't get along with Which was everybody at Welt School for me um, Became my friends In this place because they were familiar It was like hey I know you I don't know any of these other billions of people But Higgins I got into a ton of trouble I had a couple of girlfriends In Higgins but none to None to really bring up Or or make us think about And Chrissy was was there throughout Um, But I didn't see Chrissy again Until about junior year In high school so, eighth grade was a blur for me. I was buying hits of acid before school and taking it and going to math class. I remember tripping out in math class and, and the math teacher called me up to the board and I went up to the board to solve a problem. And it was, how many times does eight go into 60 or something like that? And I'm or 64 and it's super easy, easy answer. And, and I'm looking at it and suddenly I look over to my side and I can see the chalk dust kind of cascading down the chalkboard if it actually was doing that because I was tripping on, on acid, on mescaline. Um, so (laughs) I had to just sit myself back down and then, uh, you know, I, I needed to be tended to the rest of the day, but that, that's what middle school was like for me. Now, Kev at this point had been going to Fenwick. He got into Fenwick. He took the entrance exam and passed. And then this is a tuition school this is a college prep Catholic school college prep with uh, nuns I had several nuns as teachers in this place um, not you know a, a few of them were in their headdress and in the the regular gowns and I, I swear that is so they can conceal weapons um, pretty sure that sister Jo at Fenwick was she had a nine under that thing man you never saw it, because if she took it out, she was going to use it. But, you know, bullets backed by God, man. And she needed it. <laughs> it's a tough Catholic school. I'm kidding. Kevin being there was stressful because I knew Dad expected and Mom expected me to pass that same entrance exam. They told me multiple times, hey, you're taking that too. You better be ready for it. So basic, basic... Um, competency, you know, like a little mini SAT to figure out where you're at. Now, it was difficult knowing that this was the path for me because all of my um, Peabody friends referred to anyone going to Fenwick as a Fenwick fag. We repeatedly, uh, Peabody High School and Fenwick uh, would meet in the graveyard behind Fenwick and just rumble it out. Yeah, it was, it was dumb. It was gay. It was a Fight Club, but only gayer. And it was just a rivalry. They didn't like each other because the Fenwick kids were rich kids. They they were real rich kids. And the people that I ended up hanging out with that, those four years were the 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 part of that batch that weren't rich kids. You know, uh, my friends throughout high school. Um, shout out Tommy Richie, um, Dwayne, Blaine. In automobiles, um, uh, Pete, Chris, um, you know, Glenn to some extent, but Glenn was too smart to end up hanging out with us very much because we were just, we were fuckheads. I mean, Tommy and I actually were condemned to hell freshman year by Sister Margaret in reading class. We took a class called reading. So to back up, when I took this entrance, entrance exam, because there was, uh, you know, my friends were giving me a lot of heat for it. And, uh, I failed it on purpose. I failed it on purpose in that I didn't spend any time studying for it. Cause it, what, what was I going to do at that point? I had just spent the last 13 years or whatever many years I'd been in school up to that point, fucking off. What am I going to just get ready for, a? Put all the competency you're about to measure into my head the night before the test. Didn't make sense to me. I'd rather just sit and get high. I was nervous about it. I did want to. But I was skeptic about it. I knew I was going to fuck it up. But I hope that I didn't. Because there was part of me that saw this as an opportunity. Um, so I went to the test. And I did my best. But as soon as, I, as, soon as the questions started getting difficult. Um, you know. I just whoop, I'm out I think I was probably high for the exam too. So it's safe to say that I failed that exam. Now Louie being a politician in Peabody, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up a, FEN, a possible Fenwick admissions scandal because I got in. Now like I said, Kev was capable of passing that test, probably did very well on it and Kev did really good in school. Very few times do I ever remember my mother stressing to Kev about grades and when Kev applied himself, he forget it. I think Kev probably could have tested out of most of the stuff that he ended up. Uh, for both of us, the trouble that we caused I think was because we were understimulated and it wasn't, Fenwick was had plenty of course load and there was plenty to do, um, but at the same time, it just wasn't what I was interested in learning. So Fenwick admission scandal. All of a sudden, here I am that summer before freshman year of high school. For the first time in my life, I am going to purchase books. Because they they made it as much of a a college type of environment as possible. So go and buy these books. uh, Then I get um, in the mail a reading list, a summer reading list. All freshmen have to read books over the summer. So there is a uh, pile of books sitting on my bureau uh, slowly collecting dust over the summer as um, I sit there and have to read through and completely retool my wardrobe because this place has a dress code I can't wear jeans I can't wear sneakers I can't wear t-shirts that is a 150% of my wardrobe even to this day <laughs> two pairs of jeans for, for when I have to go out everything else is sweatpants So this was going to be a huge transition for me and a huge change. And for me has always been, um, that's a lot of anxiety for me when you're about to change my um, routine. But I'll tell you, the prospect was way better than having to go to the high school. The high school was just a bigger Higgins and I was just going to do the same thing there. Now I'm not going to say my drug use was going to go down if anything in, in Fenwick, it went up. And you heard the story of how we dealt drugs at Fenwick. Um, I was the person at Fenwick that knew how to get whatever he needed. And usually it just, by that point, after Kev left Fenwick, he went into Boston. He went, he got into Northeastern. So, you know, for a freshman in high school, it was very impressive when we could, you know, pile into a car as freshmen in high school, drive to my brother's apartment and party our brains out. Um, But getting to Fenwick that, that summer... Uh, big transition for me, and I I figured you know what may as well just to me that wave of transition I just get you either give yourself to it or you fight it long enough until it just takes you. That's pretty much how that goes. But Fenwick was um, Fenwick was difficult because a it was another one of those scenes where as soon as I walked in and I sat down, as soon as somebody heard my last name, boop, none was like oh. Jesus Christ. Yes, I heard a nun say, Jesus Christ, that's another Soboluski. there's another one. And it was very hard for me that freshman year to stay under the radar. And I had to behave because um, all eyes were on me. And I didn't expect to meet friends and to be, you know, all the people that I just named to you. And, and my buddy Tommy was a hockey player. He was a football player. They were all jocks that I knew. Richie was a boxer. Blaine was brilliant. Um, Dwayne was just a man. I don't even know how to describe him. Just a, He had a salt shaker full of everything. And he could sprinkle it on you. Charming. Just a, just a sweet kid. Um, and, and Chris is, was just... <laughs> and probably still to some extent, just a grunt. He was just a hard-working, blue-collar kid that just fought his way his whole life to get to where he is now. So just a decent group of guys that I just ended up falling in with there. And my my tenure at Fenwick was, was not without its issues. That freshman year, uh, we were in that reading class, Tommy and I. And we were in there with Pat, and we were in there with Johnny. And Johnny we called Moonhead. And the four of us, when we started going, th- we knew right away that this teacher didn't have this nun, didn't have the ability. There were there were two nuns. There were ones that were really, really sweet, and they was like, no, we're going to... That they usually didn't put into a position of, of power to, to be in authority. They were usually librarians and stuff. And then there were the nuns that you didn't fuck with. I'm sorry. The ones that concealed weapons, you know, always had a yardstick. You know, first she has nothing in her hands. All of a sudden she's got rosary, you know... And whacking you with a very thick yardstick. My brother had a relationship with all of these nuns. They, he was the, you know, he was the lovable villain. You know, he still had his charm. He, he had this relationship with ML Sister ML and why they, they, Mary Louise. I don't, I don't know how they name nuns. How do they name nuns? She was a force to be reckoned with on the third floor of Bishop Fenwick. Like, you couldn't pull any shit on that, in that hallway, without her hearing it, knowing it. I mean, you would just hear from out coming out from her room, and she was right in the middle of the hallway. She, and if I was 100 feet away at the other end of the hallway fucking off, she, you'd hear, Sobolewski knocking off. It was unbelievable. You thought that she had closed-circuit cameras all over the hall, but she just had the hearing of God. But Sister Margaret was one of those very, very sweet, sweet nuns in... Pat and Moonhead decided to back off her that day, but me and Tommy kept riding her and we kept plugging her and pushing her and she finally just screamed she said knock it off and and she tensed up and you could see her lower jaw muscles and her neck muscles and she said there is something very evil in this room and I am not coming back here until that evil is gone and she left. I think she floated out. Here's the problem with that. On the basement floor on the very very lower floor was Sister Geraldine. I think I've talked to her about her before. We had a we had a very interesting back and forth good cop bad cop relationship. But we knew she was coming. We knew that going over that line was probably going to summon her, but that was like the nuclear option we didn't want we didn't want to push her that far and I think me and Tommy knew what was coming. So Sister Geraldine ends up coming up and she was 4'11", she was tiny but um red hair, dark dark red hair. She kept it really short. Always had a um always had a gold cross hanging outside of her collar, um tremendous upper body strength. This and me and Tommy were in so she pulled us both out and she said listen to me. And she was very calm, but there was almost like that. Listen to me, like, like a de- not demon, but like the archangel is. She's like that is my best friend. And she is upset right now, and you guys upset her, and you are going to make it better. I don't know how, and she just walked away. Um, we apologize to sister Margaret and I think Tommy and I love that nun probably more than anybody else the whole time that we were there, probably because of that incident. Some of that, sometimes that stuff makes you closer to to nuns, but just giving you an idea of, you know, although all eyes were on me, I certainly took opportunities to keep the same old bri going and a lot of it was because... Tommy fed off it and these guys fed off it and it, it made me part of the circle and this was this was a first for me. Now the women. I'm going to talk about the women here because there were three women at Bishop Fenwick that still, all three of them, they, they were like the Holy Trinity for me, not to keep with the Catholic <laughs> um, analogies and uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Imagery. But the first girl I met, Erin, is just um she's was a volleyball player, statuesque, beautiful, cute as a button, little nose, stars in her eyes, um, straight straight hair, and just adorable. And I met her at a church bazaar. So Bubchi was very involved in Saint John's Church in the parish. Uh, Mum was very involved, and they had like a bazaar. In the middle, like a bake sale kind of thing with goods. It was huge. It was in the basketball court, and they set up a bunch of tables. Imagine like a flea market, and they were selling stuff. And my mother was working for it. Pop, she was working for it. They volunteered, and I got dragged there. And I was walking around checking things out. And I think I had a broken arm, I've broken my arm somehow. Um, I fell on a grassy, a wet grassy field playing soccer I kicked the ball the wrong way I think I got it an hour goal I fell backwards broke my hand probably because at that point I was malnourished I didn't eat I was a scrawny little thing and I was walking around and I noticed Erin and her friend walking around and she smiled at me and walked around again and smiled back and you know this is (laughs) this is teenagers you know just doing the dance eventually she comes up to me and she says you know what would you do to your hand and I told her you know a bunch of guys jumped me Oh, no, I you should see them. <laughs> and we exchanged numbers. And we started talking on the phone. And lo and behold, here we are. Bri's, Bri has a girlfriend. Oh, he's dating somebody. Super cute. I was like, well, I, I don't know why this girl likes me. She must not know anything about me. And, you know, we're talking on the phone pretty much every night for a couple hours. No, another uh, caveat of being a teenager is just... Con- and, These weren't cell phones. These were corded phones to the wall that you had to stay stationary and find comfortable places to manage that two-hour conversation. But you did it. The things we did for love back then. And one Sunday, we were on the phone and we had just started talking, but it was close to 9 o'clock. And for those of you who don't know what was important about 9 o'clock on Sundays, back in 1984, uh, Knight Rider... And I believe this was a season-ending two-hour special. Uh, excuse me, I gotta go. And and she's like, "What?" I'm like, "I gotta go." She's like, "Why?" I'm like, "I got something I gotta do." She's like, "What?" <laughs> like Night Rider's on. She said, "Night Rider." She's like, "That's hilarious." Come on. I'm like, "No, I'm serious. Night Rider's on. I'm gonna go watch it." I'll talk to you later. She's like, no, I'm not hanging up with you. We talk for two hours almost every night. Now, all of a sudden, you don't want to talk to me. So, it became an issue. And I'm sorry. You do not get between Knight Rider, a man, and Night Rider. You just don't do it. Not in 1984, you didn't. Not unless you had cocaine. And she didn't. So, I told her, listen, it's on. It, just, it started. like it was the, the theme song started up. I could see a little whoo-whoo. The little red thing going back and forth on that Trans Am. I'm like, I'm not missing. This is... You're interrupting. I said, I'm going to hang up. She's like, if you hang up right now, you're hanging up on me. I am not hanging up this phone. Click. It took me about a third of a second to make that decision. It took me four years to live it down. Because the next day that when I went into school... Everybody was calling me Knight Rider. Hey, Knight Rider. She was popular and she uh, probably got right on the phone that I probably should have spent on. You know, if I stayed on the phone with her, this wouldn't have happened. But she probably spent that time calling all of her friends to let them know that I had hung up on her to watch Knight Rider. And that is the nickname that I had, I'll say, till sophomore year, because then it became Lone Wolf. Well, my friends called me Lone Wolf. And please, you can figure that out. But, you know, freshman year, Aaron and I are done and sophomore year of Fenwick, I was in a biology class and the girl that sat next to me was Ellen, Ellen Wozniak, a former Polish person. Oh, yay. God, she was beautiful. Oh my God. I, I think I was confirmed with her in the same class in in church. We went through confirmation together. And I don't remember taking notice of her the way that I was now. But sitting next to me, I was like, I have to I have to find a way to talk to this girl. And lo and behold, we started talking. And we started dating. And I remember I was working at Santoro Subs and that was a sub shop on Main Street in Peabody. I would leave there on Sundays after I was done with work at about four o'clock. I would call her and I would ask her if I could come up and just see her. I just—I wouldn't care if we stood outside and had a five-minute conversation. I just wanted to look at her, like, like this was it, man. I could have married this girl. Okay, so as as you know, every tragic romance goes. Her father hated me. Mother hated me. So every single time I went there, um, they cut the visit short. And the only time I could spend with her of significance was when they weren't around. And we dated sophomore year until she decided she wanted to date somebody else. And she broke up with me through a friend. It was just a shit move that she made. Very hurtful. And during that downtime is when I started dating um, Beatrice. And I'll tell you that of these three women, Beatrice is where uh, the passion was. Very passionate about her. She was um almost the polar opposite of Ellen. Ellen was very uh, blonde, very bright. Uh, Beatrice was dark, cr- uh, caramel skin. Outstanding. Just a very, very pretty girl. And it that was one of those relationships that was... Uh, I don't know how to put it without sounding like a douchebag guy, but it was great for, you know, the times that Ellen, Ellen and I weren't doing well. Not that I, see, I don't want to make it sound like I was using her or anything. You know, I was always straightforward. She always knew where we stood. We we dated a little while, but it was always on and off with her. And she had her on and off things with other people too. It was just We just kind of kept meeting in the middle whenever we were available. Let's put it that way. These three women were very significant for me all through high school. For junior prom, Beatrice asked me, and I said yes. And then Ellen asked me like a week later, and I really wanted to go to Ellen. But I ended up going to that junior prom with with Beatrice. Senior prom, no date. I was there for about 20 minutes before uh, we all piled into the car and drove into uh, Boston to party our brains out. But I'll tell you that none of these relationships lasted. Like I was never with one particular person straight through. And some people had girlfriends and boyfriends straight through that entire four years. You couldn't get near them. And, and the reason I remain skeptical about love is that these were my humble beginnings. And notice how I never put 100% of anything into one person to me it was too risky so it was almost like i could get what i wanted from three different places and still like not have to give you know of myself if that's it because i it wasn't myself wasn't what i thought anybody wanted so when i come back after the break we're going to uh we're going to continue on with um a couple of relationships that I had post-high school. Um, get into some more stuff and continue on with episode 6, skepticism. Okay, we're back and still talking about our topic today, being skepticistic or a skeptimist. And I have to start this section with an, an admission. And this is where everybody's going to get real close to Bri. Um, none of the women that I mentioned prior, uh, the high school women... have sex with any of them As a matter of fact i was a virgin until i was 23. it took 23 years for me to finally get up on that horse horse and uh it was it was for a lot of reasons but one i was just way too effed up on drugs at that point in my life and they were way more important to me than ever getting laid it really was I, i always had a girlfriend wanted a girlfriend um Sex to me was just... I still felt like I didn't know how to do it. At 23, I was still very, very nervous that I didn't have even the basic experience. I'm just talking about <laughs> this is where things go in any of the women that I've mentioned prior to this, except for Erin. I don't think Erin and I ever even kissed. Beatrice was the passion and and Ellen was the love. They were all representative of... of of things for me that I, would n- I wouldn't even dare imagine I could have all in one person. So it, it, it's, again, spreading the love eggs out. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I was hitting three girls at once the whole time. No, at no point was I dating more than one woman at any given time in my life. So I just want to clear up that as we continue to discuss uh, these t- this topic... Um, yeah, I was a virgin right up until mid, mid robberies, mid period of the robberies. Um, and, and we'll get into that. After high school, there wasn't a lot going on for me. I kind of floated. I, I didn't do a whole lot. I worked here and there, I f- a couple of odd jobs, a couple of this, a couple of that, but nothing with any significance until I ended up going up to, um. Plymouth State College. And that's where be, that's where it was really like I wasn't holding on to a specific ideology if that's what anybody's thinking in terms of why I was still a virgin at, at that age. but imagine uh, how difficult it is to be you know in a frat house around a bunch of guys and I wasn't in a frat, but you know you're in college, you hang out with a bunch of frat boys. The level of misogyny, in there was just always I I never I was never really that kind of guy that partook in that. I always appreciated women because they were 10 times better than any man I ever knew. <laughs> so it was um it was hard for me to swim in that pond and still is to this day I'm not a guys guy. I don't uh you know, I can sit there with the best of them and watch a football game and burp and fart and all that stuff. That's all just great. Um but I think that's just part of being a human. The male part of it, the rah rah rah, the posturing, the you know, let's go outside and beat each other up, and they just, has never ever ever appealed to me. So, and neither has any uh team concept or sport concept in terms of you know I am a cog in in this vast machinery, and we're gonna go out and try to 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 do something. Like I said before, our our mascot was the Crusaders, man. We didn't want to just beat you. We wanted to convert you. And, and I, didn't, I just didn't see myself in that for any length of time. So again, you know, Plymouth State College, I had girlfriends. Um, I had, I had a, one, one particular girlfriend that I had that was kind of on and off. And I was really, really, really in love with her. I was really in love with her. And um, she ended up sleeping with my brother. So, I'm not going to get into that, it's, it's you know, it, it was during such a tumultuous time, you know, we're in, the, we're in the middle of the robberies, or we're just starting the robberies back then, I think I was right in my 20s, I was 21, 22 when I met this girl, and, uh, that happened on multiple occasions, by the way. Not her, but with other women. So, I've stolen girls from Kev. And Kev has stolen girls from me. So, I'm not trying to portray that particular situation as poor Bri. Please don't think that that's it. Because there have been multiple times that I swooped in and took a girl right from Kev. One of those situations was one of the times that we got probably in one of our biggest fights. Where I, where I sustained the most damage. And we were at a party in uh, Merrimack, New Hampshire, at our buddy Rob's house. And there was a girl there that we were both interested in. And it wasn't hard to show Kev as just a big dope. You know, and this is where my mouth uh, got me in trouble, but at the same time is was the only weapon that I had to use against him. So we were at this party, and as all parties kind of went out, went on, Kevin and I kept uh, polar opposite ends of the room for a very specific reason, because any, any close proximity to each other, and, you know, it was like two opposing magnets. Boom, we're gonna repel each other. And Kev had this knack of, like, if he liked a girl, he would grab her <laughs> and pick her up, and then kiss her it was eerily reminiscent of what you would imagine King Kong doing once he got <laughs> once he got the blonde girl home and at this particular party he did that he grabbed her he lifted her up but Kev miscalculated and the girl banged her head on the ceiling and it, she bumped her head man she was like ow oh. and Kev put her down and the whole party kind of stopped and it was all oh a big hush and then everybody started a party again but after After that, I decided that I was going to go in, and I started this whole, like, a 20-minute bit of King Kong jokes. I just started going after Kev. I mean, look, Kong is... And I think I might have thrown a banana into the room, like, at his feet. Like, I was pushing him hard. I was also standing outside. So, at this particular party, there was a living room where most of the people were, and then, you know, they spilled into the kitchen, and just off the kitchen um, was a second-story... Porch. And that's where I was. And that's where the keg was. And that's where a lot of people were hanging out. And that's where I had people going and laughing and giggling. Probably surrounded by chicks. But as the laughter began to begin to spread through the room. And eventually got to Kev. And everybody was had their attention on me. It was almost like I was doing a set. I was roasting the kid. And breaking the tension that he created. Because, I mean, that could have ended the party right there. But, of course there was a limit and once kev snapped it was you just either got out of the way or of his target or as the target you know you found a way to brace yourself and that's exactly what happened kev snapped <laughs> and it's just the back of his neck just straightens and you could tell the bull's about to charge and he came screaming at me and you know all I can do is I grab the railings of the of the porch. I was like, I don't know what he's going to do. And he grabbed me and he lifted me over the railing and he threw me off the porch. It was a story down. wasn't that bad. Only he threw me into a rock garden, like a Japanese rock garden. And I hit those things pretty hard. And I was down there. And I stayed down. Because I was pretty hurt. And I heard my brother say, if anybody goes down there and fucking touches him, you're going to hear from me. Like, leave him there. (laughs) Um... So, there was always that uh, back and forth with him. You know, that was the only thing that I could do, in my opinion, to to fight back at Kev. And, like I said, during the robberies, I didn't date a lot. Um, there weren't many women of significance during that time period. That was a time that I got sober, yada, yada, yada. And at the time that I was with Don. By the time I had met Dawn, now we're talking, you guys remember Dawn, I introduced her as uh, I met her while Kev was uh, receiving a delivery of marijuana from Susan down in Florida because I couldn't get weed and we were about to do the Littleton job, and that's where I, I met her. and as you remember from the last episode, uh, I put a ring on her finger, one of the rings that I found in the safe, and, and I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And, and all of a sudden here, now I am engaged while the rest of my life is an absolute raging sea. So I've said it before and I'm gonna say it again, Dawn was a hostage. I was in the middle of, of watching my life sink and grasping at anything that could keep me afloat, and Dawn was it. Dawn was an excellent place for me to hide out, knowing that they were looking for me, and thinking that I was actually hidden out, and you're not. She was uh, a place to live, uh, very close proximity to Brookside, which is where I was working, Um, very close proximity to the highway, so i could get right to school. It was great. Everything was great about it, except for the fact that I had no intention whatsoever of marrying this girl. So we did the regular stuff, man. We told her parents. Um, I told my mom, and my mom acted accordingly. And, and that's the beauty of my mom. My mom played the game well. She kept a great poker face. And you always found out exactly how she felt about a particular person, once it didn't mean anything. And you were always like, motherfucker, that's what you were thinking the whole time. <laughs> and my mother was no different. After uh, I ended up breaking up with Dawn and that whole situation was over, my mother was like, hmm, I always thought she had a really big head. And it was just like, boom, now I can no longer look at Dawn ever again without seeing a giant bulbous uh, Macy's Day parade balloon head. God damn it. (laughs) But like I told you before and I mentioned briefly, when I first met Dawn, her mother was dying of lung cancer and she was living in an apartment building in the Section 8 housing that Dawn was in, right across from her, building right across. And eventually we moved her into our apartment so that we could keep, you know, Dawn was a nurse. So the best place for this woman was her daughter's house instead of with her boyfriend across the way who didn't have that experience. So I actually insisted. I said, how hard can it be to get a hospital bed down here? Let's put her in the living room and just keep her here. And it was just, it's just, it's chilling. It's just a chilling, I don't know what it's like to to go through that and hope I never do. But cancer is just an awful, it's just awful. And she had already been told that, listen, there's nothing more we can do. And that's going to be, of, of the whole process of being diagnosed and going through treatment and all the hope that you're trying to hold on to and all of that stuff, that final hey, there's there's nothing more anything treatment will do. We'll just try to keep you as comfortable as possible, and you're leaving. You're done. Like that's that's gonna be hard. And I remember that being very difficult for Dawn's mom. But she lived with us. We got a little baby monitor for her, so we could hear anytime she woke up at night. Or and that it was very stressful. It was a it was a stressful time. But um, it was. It was actually it was actually nice. It was nice to get to know the woman. It was nice to be able to make her as comfortable as possible. And uh, she passed away not long after we moved her in. And that was a... It wasn't a stress on the relationship. It was actually probably helpful at the time because I was just biding my time at that point. This is, this is when I started to feel... That uh, I fucked up. I shouldn't have put a ring on her finger. She was actually taking this very seriously, and I was starting to come to the realization that I couldn't possibly take this seriously. I'm gonna get married. Like, not only forget, forget that you know my dad's in prison. Forget that Nancy just got arrested. Forget that I have had calls with Kev from prison. Forget that my life is on a on a tightrope, and there's there's you know, somebody at one end ready to cut that tightrope. I'm not talking about whether or not I'm going to make it to the other side and be able to balance my way. I am living a life where at any point somebody's going to snap that rope. So I slowly start coming to the realization that um, I am not going to marry this woman. I have no intention of marrying this woman. And part of the reason why I felt that way was Cheryl now at this point I'm not a virgin anymore and we're not going to talk about see I didn't my first sexual experience was not I I reached a point at 23 where I at one point I was like eh, I want to be in love and I want to have want to have somebody special and give my virginity somebody's like wow no at no point I was what they would say in prison I was STD I was scared to death I was scared to death of sex I had no idea I had no idea what to do And part of it was I was scared to death of what everybody told me emotionally it would do to you. Like the emotions surrounding sex, not just the act of, hey, I had an orgasm, this is great. But I think that's probably what kept me from engaging in it up to that point. So it wasn't the fear of the act. I had plenty of practice. (laughs) It wasn't like I didn't know where everything went. I mean, that was really just a smokescreen to hide the fact that there was this was an emotional powder keg, and uh, I'm not lighting that fuse, right? And to some extent, you know, <laughs> my skepticism at this point has me believing that I, I don't think I'm going to do that again. I think that my last relationship was my last one, period, because I haven't been in one for it's got four years now. So, Don. Dawn was a hostage, man, and I slowly started to see that uh, I needed to get out of this. Cheryl worked at Brookside, and she was an intern too. She didn't go to the tech. I think she was doing a different degree somewhere else, but she was interning at Brookside. And she was the exact opposite of Dawn, where Dawn was uh, bright, blonde, blue-eyed, uh, Cheryl was dark and smoldering and smoky and caramel and sexy. Shit. She was just everything. She looked, talked, acted, smelt, felt exactly like you thought God had intended when he had first come up with the idea of building a female. And I, I don't know. God is a female, if you ask me. But if if she is a female, this is <laughs> this was created in her likeness. Cheryl was an amazing woman. She had two little kids. She lived a couple doors down from Dawn. You see where this is going? Yeah, I'm an ass. I'm I'm heading right towards uh, not exactly what you think, but you know, close enough. We started talking, and there was another counselor at Brookside that was interested in her. And caused a little bit of tension for me because Cheryl and I clearly flirted. We had we had uh, chemistry. There was energy between us. We filled the room with sexual tension when we were in it together. So I really, at work, tried to stay away from her, but it was very difficult to stay away from her, living two doors down from her. Now, I'm not going to say that I cheated on Dawn because I didn't. Dawn and I started to have issues. I started to sort of wiggle away. Now, it wasn't just me saying this is a hostage situation and I don't like this person. And and Dawn started changing too. So once the the ring got put on her finger, you know, I'm into exercise. I'm into fitness. I started to you know, Dawn, I, I started to ask, will you come? Come work out with me. Let's do something together. Let's do something active. You don't have to come to the gym and, and crush sets with me, but... Maybe something as a couple together would be nice. And I'm still like that. I still think that's a, that's a very important part of a relationship for me. You don't, again, you don't have to do everything that I like to do. But at the same time, being active together is kind of cool. She wasn't into it. And she didn't smoke cigarettes when I met her. And then started smoking right after we were engaged. Almost like she hid it. I knew she smoked weed. Like every night she would smoke a half a joint and we would lay in bed and... And she started to gain weight. And uh, I don't care about that. I mean, I've some of my girlfriends have been close to 200 pounds. I don't care about that because most of the, if you we do meet, we are in a relationship and we are active, uh, you know, I'll make you look however you want. <laughs> most, most of my relationships end with a girl looking 10 times better than when she met me. And she goes out and she gets whoever the fuck she wants. Good for you. I mean, that's, that, it's, gotta be, it's really the only thing I have to offer in a relationship at this point. Is I'll make you look however you want, but you know I can't really give you a fancy car and a fancy apartment and, and fancy things. But you'll get shredded. So sign up. Uh, check me out on social media. <laughs> I'm taking applications. We just started having problems. Her daughter really didn't like me. And now is the part that I want to tell you about how after Nancy was arrested the paranoia movies have done have done parodies about this every cocaine movie goes into the how it makes you paranoid and marijuana makes you paranoid and but the level of paranoia that i was living that at that point had to have weakened my heart it had to have grayed my hair it had to have wrinkled my skin because it was constant and it started, first of all, one of the things that I started doing that I had to stop myself doing actively while I was in the moment was, back then most cruisers there was a different, you could tell it was a official police vehicle whether marked or unmarked by square headlights this was, you know, the 90s and there weren't the fancy LED lights now and most cops had that kind of car and prior to that my whole life, when I was selling drugs at the end of a street in Peabody, um, I can't even believe I'm, I i can not remember the name of the street right now, where the bridges were. At the end of the, at the end of the street was a bridge that led you into the parking lot that led into our school. So it was like a, it was an easy escape route. We hung out at the bridge and we sold drugs there. Now, if we, there were multiple places that a cop could come in, like swoop in and, and arrest us. But we had our exits covered, so um, we would post somebody a little bit down the street while we were dealing. And anybody—it was a one-way street. Anybody that turned onto that street, Hancock Street, ha ha—I knew I'd remember it. Hancock Street in Peabody—it's a one-way street. Turn—you turn off of Washington Street. It was a one-way street, there's a bunch of uh, low-income apartments, and there was this old butcher shop there that I remember. One of my first memories was Bob bringing us to this old, old butcher shop at the end of that street. I don't even know if the building's still there. I haven't been to Peabody in years. but The end of Hancock Street was a dead-end street, and you could turn off this little tiny street off of Hancock and reach another one-way street that brought you back to Washington. So that was an ideal place for us because a cop had to come down the one-way street. We would have seen the square headlights. We could jet into the woods once we saw it. If they came in the weld School side, we had plenty of warning when they were coming in. So either they approached on foot, which we would have seen. It was just a beautiful spot. It really was. So any time that I drove either to Brookside or to school is where I noticed it the most. I drove the entire way in the rearview mirror and if i saw square headlights i lost my shit i would pull off i would go you know i would see if they would follow me man it, it was constant it usually took me an hour to get to school that usually took me a half hour because of how many times i would have to pull off the road because i thought there was a pair of square headlights and oh and forget it if i saw a marked car now again i, I it was it, it is unlikely that they were going to come at me... Lights blazing and guns out. You know, they, they got Nancy at work. And they got Dad going to Chinese food. And they got Kev en route from apartments. So, any, anything that I'm doing... Any behavior that is set to quell the paranoia... Is failing miserably. I would be at school... And I, my friend Debo and I still talk about this. This woman, Debo, was, uh, was taking, she, she went through classes with me at the same time. And she was Native American. And I would walk in and she would always tell me that my aura was pink or she would tell me what color my aura was. And I hated it because I don't know what color paranoia was, but I think it's pink because my, my aura was pink most of the time. Really sweet lady. Still really good friends with her. She is married to Marcel. And, um, we were in class one day and we were having a guest speaker and I was I didn't know who the guest speaker was and a state police officer in full dress garb walks into the classroom and she like... I went white and she looked at me and she goes, Bri, are you okay? And I got up and I left the room. I, I mean... And I had to spend that entire period in the in the men's bathroom just trying to get over the anxiety attack. He wasn't there for me. He was there to, to guest speak. And I couldn't be in the room because I thought for sure he was gonna he knew who I was. Like he was gonna he just he was just gonna be able to tell. Cops have a, a sixth sense about that kind of stuff. At work Now, knowing that Nancy was at work and they called her, right? They said, "Hi, is Nancy there? And she's like, yeah, this is Nancy. And they're like, hey, this is the police. Uh, You can either come out here, we have warrants for your arrest, or we're coming in to get you. That's how she went down. So at work, I used to answer the phone, Brookside Hospital Chemical Dependency Unit, Adult Chemical Dependency Unit, how can I help you? And if they asked for me and I didn't recognize the voice, I said I wasn't there. Nope, he's not here right now, can I take a message? That happened, so I'm at work one day, right? And I knew Don's voice, I, and I had to let everybody at work also know that if I got a call, tell them I'm not here. What? I'm on a locked chemical dependency unit, and I have to pull all the nurses, because it was nurses at the nurse's station and maybe a couple of other mental health workers, and pull every, the whole staff in the back and say, "Guys, you know, if anybody calls here, can you tell them I'm not here? Why? Oh, uh, it's uh, I. I can't even tell you what what I what excuse I came up with uh, as to why I was unavailable to speak with somebody should they call. But some little fuck, one of the patients, heard me say it, and this kid was a little shit, and he went into the nurses' station. Like there was this little office right off the nurse's station where you would do blood pressure and stuff and he went in there and he picked up the phone and he called the unit and he asked for me, I answered and he asked for me and I said, no, he's not here right now, can I take a message? He's like, no, and he hung up and I'm ready to shit myself. I hang up the phone and I start panicking, I start pacing all over the place the nurse is like, Brian, what the hell's going on? And that little fucker comes up to me he's like, hey, uh, bro, you're not here? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, uh, you just told somebody on the phone you're not here. I'm like that was you you fucking wow. I lost my shit. That it was just he was fucking with me. He had like it was a spider just playing with its food. That little fucker, man. I remember his face. I couldn't tell you his name. My friend Paddy would know who he is. But um the it was just and, and it was the stress. The stress was unbearable. So Cheryl ended up being, she didn't know any of it. She didn't know any of the story. Um, she was, she had become in my mind and in my heart, a beacon of, of just, I can just come and be, I can, I can unburden myself of all the shit that I carry at her door and feel okay with myself. And knowing that that was the case, knowing that that is how I felt about Cheryl, I had to end it with Dawn. You see why I'm skeptical here, because up to this point, I can tell you that I hadn't been in love. Dawn, I was never in love with Dawn. It was infatuation at first. Um, it was one of my first, you know, committed sexual relationships. Because yes, I I wasn't a virgin anymore, but she was the first girlfriend that I had. That was a sexual relationship. So there was. There was the emotion of that. There was the emotion of my dad being in jail. There was the emotion of all that other stuff that just made this a situation that was never going to work out right. Um, So things just started to fall apart between her and I. And one of the things that that made it tough was on more than one occasion while I was living with Dawn, um, I thought they were going to come in and get me in that apartment. So Dawn had this big walk-in closet. And there were two mattresses inside like a little twin bed. It's like one of her kids' old mattresses set up that she was keeping. And I figured, you know, there's no place to hide anywhere in an apartment when if the cops would come in and, and raid the place. And I thought of what I thought was an ingenious idea. I took the box spring outside with a saw and I... I took all the boards, the crossing boards that went across. Um, this was an old box spring. I don't, I don't even know how they make them now, but back then it was all the springs were set up on a wood frame and the wood frame had these, these beams that would go across. So I cut all the beams in the middle out so that I could take the box spring and pull it all the way and set it up against the wall and still be inside the box spring. See what I'm saying? So... If the cops ever started rapping on the door, we had a drill that I would go into the closet, I would get into the box spring, we would pull it back, we'd put the mattress over the box spring, and then Don would try to push everything else in the closet to make it look like no one had been up to those box springs in forever. Once I was in there, you couldn't, you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. Now, no way this was going to work. There was no way. I mean, if they came in there with a search warrant or an arrest warrant, they'd they'd find me. But I thought I was genius. This was, this was an activity that I could engage in, where the anxiety could be quelled for you know however however long it took me to saw these things out and to put this all in place. But it was a it was at least an action, an action that helped me. React to everything that had been happening. I guess you know when you're in those situations, being busy helps, and and that that's pretty much the only thing that I'm gonna take away from that box spring thing. But I thought it was genius. I really did. I was like, hmm. uh, it, when you think you're smarter than them, you know, it's almost like teenage disease. Like every single teenager when they hit that uh, when they hit adolescence, they become brilliant, and everybody else in the world becomes stupid. Uh, same thing. Especially when you're dealing with cops. One of the nights that um, I was babysitting for her daughter, um, and this was a regular occurrence, I would be sitting looking out the window. Um, and if a cop, a cruiser, came into the Section 8 housing development, which they did constantly, I would lose my shit. All lights had to go off in the apartment. Um, Kaylee had to go into a room. That was, that was, uh, Don's daughter's name, six-year-old kid, beautiful little, cute as a button kid. She had to be really, really, oh, gotta be really quiet. Don't say a word because if they started pounding on that door, we couldn't, I thought that, you know, hey, if they start pounding on the door, we'll pretend we're not home, huh? <laughs> what an idea. This is fantastic. I am so far ahead of the curve. I'm surprised that municipalities and police stations aren't calling me to come in and help train their their police corps with all the, crack information i have about hey make sure you check those make sure you check those box springs it could be 5 X ex-cons in there so as happened on a regular basis i had to lock the entire apartment down make it quiet keep it silent and then just i would just stand and look out the peephole man and go i mean go to your peephole right now and look as far as you can left and look as far as you can right and that's basically what i did for hours until that cruiser went away Or somebody came home or like, I don't know, it was, it was, it was an awful, awful fucking way to live. Absolutely terrible and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again um, for anything. Cheryl and I started to date uh, a little bit after that and throughout this whole thing until, um, until I end up going to prison. But um, I'm going to leave you there. Now... As you can see through my relationships, why I'm skeptical about being in love. And it's not that I, I don't think these things exist or that they're wonderful. I just don't. It's very tough. As you've been listening to this, you know what kind of upbringing I had. I don't have a lot of successful, significant love relationships to fall back on when I am in that situation. So, uh, thank you to all the women out there that I've mentioned here. If you're listening, uh, you know, (laughs) first, I hope you're not freaked out. I didn't know last names. I just used first names, but I think it's pretty easy. Anybody that knows me and knows where I'm from, and I know a lot of you listen. So, if you don't like the fact that I've talked about you in this podcast, I will erase this entire episode. Just message me on social media. I don't think I said anything too bad about anybody, and it was all true. Moving forward... Next episode is is going to be a very, very interesting one to write and one to portray to you because we're going to talk about my arrest. And my God, there's so much happening in this. It, it, it's, it's a spectacular event that, that you really have to listen to to get the the whole crux of. So I don't know if you're a skeptic, but I am. Uh, I hope you like this episode as much as I liked making it for you. Um, really having a blast so far in season two. And I can't wait for the next episode, guys. Episode seven is coming next Sunday. Hope you enjoy this. Please take care of yourself and take care of each other. Bye-bye.